Good morning, church. Our Bible reading today is coming from Psalm 42 and 43. I will read. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pains for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. While men say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go with the multitude leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizma. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony, as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. Rescue me from deceitful and wicked men. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain to the place where you dwell. Then will I go to the altar of God, to God, my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the harp, O God, my God. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Portia, very much indeed. Uh, well, let me just start with a word of thanks to everybody who labored so hard yesterday to make that seminar such a success. Um, it was lovely to see this hall filled. I think it was a great testimony to that statement, that uh, dictum, that uh, teamwork makes the dream work. Uh, that certainly was the case yesterday. So thank you for that. And uh, then just a little reminder that we have our monthly prayer meeting on Wednesday. Uh, do please make sure that you send me your personal prayer request 
uh, by Monday night so that we can get the printout to you ahead of time. Well, let's have uh, Psalm 42 and 43 open in front of us. As Alice said earlier, we're taking a short break just for this weekend from Ephesians. We will return there next Sunday morning. But uh, today we're just picking up on some of the atmosphere of yesterday and uh, seeing what we can learn from these two familiar but perhaps rather mysterious psalms. So let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, your word is balm for the broken, ballast for the bewildered, and bread for the hungry. So, Father, please come to us this morning through your word to comfort us, to reassure us, and to feed us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as White mentioned earlier, our our theme this morning is the downcast Christian, and uh, our key text is verse 5 in Psalm 42. And I'll start by reading that for us again. Verse 5, Psalm 42. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. And uh, I'm sure, as um, Portia was reading it for us, that you realise that verse is actually repeated three times. It's there again, isn't it, in verse 11, and it's there again in chapter 43, Psalm 43, verse 5. And uh, the fact that verse 5 is repeated in both Psalms is actually one of several reasons why the church throughout the ages has treated these two Psalms as one. In fact, in my NIV Bible, and it may be there in yours as well, there's a footnote against the heading Psalm 42 and also Psalm 43, and it says at the bottom of the page that in many Hebrew manuscripts, Psalms 42 and 43 constitute one psalm. There are a couple of other reasons uh, why we might say these two belong together. Uh, So, for example, while Psalm 42 has a title, You notice the title, the superscription there, the director of music, a mascal of the sons of Korah. Um, Psalm 43 doesn't have a title. And the experts believe that's because when they were first written, they were a unit. And so for those reasons, and a couple of others that we haven't got time to explore this morning, we're treating them as one poem. So what is this remarkable psalm really about? That's the important question. Uh, Let me start with one or two negatives. This psalm is not about clinical depression. Uh, If you do know people with clinical depression, uh, you'll know that they need more help than the Bible can give. Uh, Jane said that, didn't she, in her talk yesterday? They need special help from trained medics. And if you know people like that and you want to be pointed in the right direction for help, do please come and see me afterwards and I might be able to put you in touch with an experienced professional. 
So this psalm is not dealing with clinical depression, nor is it, I think, so much about temperamental depression. You know, that that aspect of some people's personality that causes them to wake up in the morning feeling down in the dumps for no particular reason. That is surprisingly common. Um, It's a great trial for the people who suffer from it. But I don't actually think this psalm is speaking about them either. Because what this psalm is talking about is actually common to all Christians at some time or other. Uh, You may have noticed that the word downcast is repeated four times in the text. And uh, if you look up that word downcast in a thesaurus... It'll tell you that that word means uh, despondent, disheartened, discouraged, or dismayed. And uh, when we put it like that, we would have to say that the Christian who has never been downcast and never been discouraged would be really exceptional. After all, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ was himself downcast and discouraged on several occasions during his earthly ministry. Uh, So I'm sure you'll remember that he wept, didn't he, over unbelieving Jerusalem. He wept over the grave of a very dear friend. And Isaiah describes him as a man of sorrows. It seems, doesn't it, that there was a great deal that disheartened Jesus during his earthly ministry. So I'm going to assume that this psalm speaks to everyone. It's not a psalm that is especially about depression. Uh, It's about every Christian when they go through times of discouragement and being disheartened. So let's start then by asking, what do we know about the person who wrote Psalm 42 and Psalm 43? And the first thing that we discover is that he was a passionate believer. You can see that in verse 1. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. So his soul is thirsty for God. He's a believer. Why then is he discouraged? Well, if you'll look at verse 6, you'll see that for some reason, um, our friend is miles away from Jerusalem. Uh, He's about 100 miles north of Jerusalem in the hills of Hermon. The title of Psalm 42 tells us that he was one of the sons of Korah, which means that he was a Levite with special responsibilities in the temple. He might possibly have been a musician. But for some reason, perhaps he was deported in one of the many uh, invasions uh, of Judah by the Assyrians. For some reason, he's been separated from all of that. And then again, if you look at verse 3, he's miserable because he's surrounded by pagan neighbors. And they're a complete pest because they keep taunting him, saying, Where is your God? He's also thoroughly homesick, which you can see from verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. 
how I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God. Referring, of course, to the ministry that he used to enjoy at the temple back in Jerusalem. So he's a real believer. Uh, He's had to leave Jerusalem for some reason or other, probably a Levite from the temple. Uh, He's under pressure from neighbors who are pagans and who are mocking him and treating him with contempt because of his faith. He's longing to return to Jerusalem, but that seems pretty unlikely because in verse 9, he says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? So he's not expecting to be able to return home anytime soon. That's what we know about the psalmist. But what's the message for us this morning? Well, we've got to proceed slightly carefully here because we are not Old Testament believers. And we're not in exactly the same situation as the man in the psalm. As far as I'm aware, there's nobody here this morning who's longing to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And uh, if you do make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, you won't find God there. What you will find is the site where they believe that Jesus was buried. Uh, It's a garden that is still rather beautifully maintained by Christians today. And uh, if you go to the door of the tomb where tradition says that Jesus was buried, what you'll actually find is a little postcard pinned to the door that says he is not here, he has risen. And that, of course, is wise, isn't it? It's a wise thing to have done that. Because you do meet Christians today who believe that by taking a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, somehow they'll be nearer to God. But that is not right. Because, as I'm sure you know, the only way to meet God today is through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what then does this psalm mean for us? What can a New Testament Christian learn from it? Well, I think there is a very important truth here. And until I was preparing for this morning, I'd never seen it before. But it is something very special because there's a very strange tension running all the way through the text, and I want you to experience it with me as I point it out to you. So notice on the one hand, our friend is very far from God. So in the second line of verse 2, have a look at it. He says, where can I go and meet with God? Now he feels that God is miles away. On the other hand, God is very near. Because in verse 8, he says, By day the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me. Now if you think about that, it's a pretty strange contradiction, isn't it? Uh, There's a strange tension running all the way through the text. Uh, God seems to be very far away. And yet God is also wonderfully near. Now that I think is teaching us something that is hardly ever spoken about today. And I hope this is going to be an encouragement for you this morning. Because what it's doing is it's actually talking about being a Christian 
in a godless world. And uh, what this psalm is talking about is that in this world, God does very often seem to be absent. And yet at the same time, he's very close. He's right here with us. And uh, I want us to look at both aspects of this as we find them here in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. On the one hand, the absence of God, and then on the other hand, the nearness of God. So firstly then, the absence of God. Now, of course, we hear this all the time, don't we, from our atheist friends. Uh, They sneer at us, saying, well, where is your God? Uh, Where was he during coronavirus? Why doesn't he do something to stop the the violence and the poverty and the corruption in South Africa? He doesn't seem to be answering your prayers. So, So the absence of God is an idea that is very familiar today with people who feel that what's going on in the world, what's going on in the lives of their friends and family, seems to prove that if God exists at all, he's abandoned us, he's absent. Uh, But when people do start talking like this, it's very important for us as Christians to know what God has to say about it in Scripture. I'd like to give you one example of that. Please keep a finger in Psalm 42 and uh, turn right in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. So here we have the uh, great apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, He, of course, met, didn't he, the risen Christ on the Damascus Road. He knew all about the nearness of God. So what does he have to say about this? Verse 6 of chapter 5. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him whether we are at home in the body or away from it. Now, what I want you to notice here is that you can't have both. Uh, If you're in the body here on earth, you are away from the Lord. Uh, So are we this morning here at St Barnabas at home in the body? Are you? Uh, Just look briefly, will you, to your right and to your left and see if you think that the people around you are in the body. Well, I mean, you only need a quick look, don't you, to see that they're not ghosts. And in about 20 minutes' time, you'll see them over there having coffee and having some of that delicious cake, which I noticed before the service. I'm looking forward to that. And you'll realise they're very much in the body. But these people that you looked at are also Christians. So everyone who's here this morning who believes in Christ 
is in the body and is therefore by definition away from the Lord. And the Lord is away from them, isn't he? Because Christ is in heaven. He's at God's right hand. And you see, if you and I are going to be effective and useful in our Christian witness, we've got to get the balance clear in our minds. Many Christians are muddled about this. I'm sure you remember that conversation Jesus had with his disciples the night before he died. Jesus tells them, you remember, that he's going away, he's going to the Father's throne, and that's where he's going to remain until he returns. Uh, The disciples, of course, are extremely upset. They've got no idea how they're going to cope without him. And Jesus goes on to say, but I am sending you my spirit, and therefore I will be with you. And you can read all about that in John chapters 14 to 16, which we'll be looking at in the first term next year. And uh, at the time, of course, the disciples had absolutely no idea what Jesus was talking about. You know, how can you say you're going away to your father's throne in heaven and then in the very next breath say that you're also going to be with us? How can you be both absent and yet also present? I mean, it's an extremely important question, isn't it? What does it mean for the disciples then and for us this morning that Jesus has returned to the right hand of God. Well, in part, the reason that he's returned to heaven is because this world has rejected him. So by definition, the disciples then and disciples now must live in a Christ-rejecting world. But there's more to it than that. In fact, there are two important answers to this question. Uh, There's the answer for the world at large, which is not actually dealt with in Psalm 42 and 43. And then there is specifically the answer for the believer, which is. But first, I want to go down a little side road for just a moment and think about the answer to that question for the world at large. So don't turn to it, but just cast your mind back to Mark chapter 13. That extraordinary scene where the disciples are with Jesus at the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus has told them he's going to leave them. And uh, for whatever reason, the disciples point to the magnificent temple. Do you remember that? And Jesus says something about it being destroyed. Uh, The disciples haven't got a clue what he's talking about. And then Jesus says this. Watch out that no one deceives you. When I'm away, many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. So, although by his spirit, the Lord Jesus is going to be with his disciples, the world in which they're going to be living, and in which you and I are living this morning, 
is a world in which Jesus is absent. It's a world that's rejected Jesus as king and has said, we do not want this man to reign over us. And therefore, like every other Christian, uh, we're going to be caught up in the fact that there will be brutal invasions like the one going on in Ukraine. There will be famines like the terrible famine that's taking place in Somalia at the moment. There will be violent persecution of the churches throughout the world because these things are the inevitable consequences of living in a world that has rejected its maker. He's away, he's absent, and you and I have got to live with the consequences. So what are the consequences then? We thought about the world at large. What are the consequences for those of us who are Christians? Well, this is where we come back to our psalm, where we're given, I think, a very clear picture of the consequences we face as believers when God is absent. And the first of those consequences is pain. And uh, here we're thinking not so much about physical illness uh, or bereavement, but of that strange particular pain we experience living as strangers in the world. I mean, think for a moment of what it was like for you when you first became a Christian. Uh, the people that uh, you were with before were exactly the same. You know, your friends, your family, your colleagues at work, they hadn't changed. But you have uh, your priorities, your values, your language, they're different. So very soon, you start to feel like a stranger. And in that situation, you see, we immediately connect with the feelings of the psalmist. I mean, look at verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, where is your God? Or verse 10. My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Or look at uh, Psalm 43, verse 1. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. Now we understand that, don't we? I mean, we're living in an ungodly nation, aren't we? You know that we are. And as Cape Town drifts further and further away from Christian faith and practice, it will become more and more painful for the believer. And uh, just as an aside, if it is not painful for you, well, something's wrong. I mean, it was painful even for Lot, wasn't it? Not all of you were here when we looked at Lot. But do you remember the story? Uh, how painful it was living for Lot in the godlessness of Sodom. Of course, he shouldn't have been there in the first place. Uh, and when we read about Lot, I find it quite hard to understand that he was actually a believer at all. But the New Testament very definitely says that he was, and he was deeply grieved by what was going on around him. For myself, I find this quite an uncomfortable question. 
Because over the past couple of years, there have been quite a number of high-profile moral failures amongst church leaders. Uh, this week, I was thinking about uh, one particular church leader whose moral failure was broadcast just about everywhere last year. And the reason I was thinking about him was because uh, I was using a commentary that uh, he had recommended it endorsed it on the back of the book some years before he was exposed. Now, did I feel pain about that? Well, I'm ashamed to say I don't think I did. Discouraged? Yes. Disappointed? Certainly. But pain? No. See, I think I've become rather cynical so that I'm not actually surprised when people like that turn out to be traitors to the faith. I mean, I ought to feel pain, but the trouble is there's been so much of it that we're used to it. And when yet another scandal hits the headlines, we shrug our shoulders. But here, the psalmist felt real pain. Secondly, living in that pagan society and being banished from the temple of God, he was confused. Uh, one of the things I love about the Psalms, and uh, Jane mentioned this yesterday, is that the psalmist is so very honest, isn't he? He doesn't hide his questions. He pours out his heart to God. So there is one psalm where he says, God, will you please wake up? Why are you asleep? You're not listening to me. Well, look again at verse 2 in Psalm 42. When can I go and meet with God? Verse 9. Why have you forgotten me? Now, it's important to understand he's not asking these questions in an attitude of rebellion. He's simply perplexed. He doesn't understand. But, of course, isn't that the experience of Christians today? You know, we often have questions, don't we, that we, we want to ask, not in a spirit of rebellion, but because we're deeply and genuinely perplexed about the situation in which we find ourselves. And that, too, is normal Christian experience. Why do I say that? Well, listen again to the Apostle Paul. There's a place where he says... We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Now just think about that for a moment. You know, here's the greatest missionary who's ever lived. The person who won more people to Christ than anybody else. And yet even he can say, well, you know, often I was hard-pressed, often I was crushed, often I was perplexed, but never ultimately in despair. Thirdly, in verse 7, perhaps the most memorable verse in the psalm, um, he has these tremendous setbacks. I think that's probably the best way to picture it. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. Now what is that? It's a picture, isn't it, of somebody being overwhelmed. 
You know, he's almost unable to keep his head above the water as you know, one setback follows another, follows another. And every Christian knows precisely what he's talking about. Because sometimes the trials and the setbacks are very, very discouraging. But again, for the Christian, setbacks are normal. Fourthly, he suffers from spiritual drought. Well, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? That's the beginning of Psalm 42. Now, we're thankful, uh, I think, for the spiritual refreshment that we enjoy together here on a Sunday, and uh, again in the various meetings we have during the week. But I think most of you will know people who are starving spiritually. That might be because there isn't a Bible teaching church nearby. Or it might be that while their church used to have a Bible-believing pastor, he moved on many years ago. So now the services are focused elsewhere. They're focused on social programs of some kind or political issues or human interest stories or entertainment. And there isn't, just, there isn't any room for God's word. So even if your spiritually starving friend doesn't know Psalm 42, in their heart they will connect with verse 4. Verse 4 is true for them. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God, with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Now I've given you a pretty simple list there. Um, pain, confusion, setbacks, uh, spiritual drought, uh, the, you know, the sadness of looking back to days of spiritual vitality and realizing with sadness how little of that actually remains now. But friends, what I want to say to you is that those are all symptoms of what it means to be in the body but away from the Lord. And yet, although he is away from the Lord, and the Lord is away from him, but the Lord is in heaven, he also knows that God is near. So let's look at that now because it's so much more encouraging and we can take this away with us into the coming week. What can we learn from this psalm about the nearness of God? Okay? I want you to notice three things. There's more we could mention... But these three are really important, and I want to encourage you to apply them to yourself this week. And that's partly because in the years to come, some of you are going to find yourself in places where there might not be a living church or the kind of Christian fellowship that we enjoy together here. So what then? Well, wherever you are, you will have at least these three things. First, if you are walking with the Lord, you will have a rich experience of God's love. Now, verse 8 is a rather strange verse, and the commentators can't seem to agree how it came to be slotted in to what is otherwise a rather sad poem. But we don't need to know the original reason because it's so true to life, isn't it? 
you know, that in the middle of the waterfalls and the waves, verse 8, by day the Lord directs his love, at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. That's a stunning contrast, isn't it? But it's so realistic. There will be setbacks, but when there are setbacks, the Lord's love is right there. And that's what I mean by a rich experience of God's love. Didn't Jane talk about this yesterday? Didn't she say that when she was mourning the death of her husband, Stephen, that it was actually in that very sad time that she had a deeper experience of the love and presence of God than she'd ever had before. Did you hear her say that? Well, if you walk with Christ, if you are obedient to him, if you thirst for his presence, well, there need never be a time when you don't have rich experiences of God's love in your heart and in your life. Second, this psalm teaches us that however difficult our outward circumstances might be, they are never, never a barrier to a living prayer relationship with God. It's very striking, isn't it, in the psalm, that even while our friend is downcast and deeply discouraged, he can still say to God, verse 1, my soul pants for you, O God. I mean, do you see that? In the midst of the discouragement, he's talking to God, he's praying. And throughout the psalm, actually, there are these tremendous cries from his heart into the heart of God. Psalm 43, verse 1, Vindicate me, O God, plead my cause against an ungodly nation. Verse 2, You are God my stronghold. Verse 3, Send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then will I go to the altar of God, to God my joy and my delight, and I will praise you with the harp, O God, my God. So are you getting the balance clear in your mind? You know, there's, there's darkness in this psalm, but there is also wonderful light. There's the chill, the frost of being separated from familiar Christian fellowship, but there's also the warmth of the Lord's presence. So a rich experience of God's love, a vigorous prayer relationship in every moment of life, but perhaps the most important thing of all is a very strong sense of God's sovereignty over his life now and the future to come. Because that's the message, actually, of the repeated verse. Verse 5 of Psalm 42, verse 11, Psalm 43, verse 5. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. We don't talk about Christian hope nearly as much as we ought to. We know that the future belongs to God. We know that whatever dark clouds there might be today, they're not going to last forever. 
We also know that God is sovereign. Uh, you know, the waves and the breakers can at times feel completely overwhelming, but they're always under God's sovereign control, and our future is in his hands. I want to say to you that there is no greater thing for us to know than that. Because, you see, our non-Christian friends don't know that. And that's why many of them are so terribly anxious. But the psalmist does know that the future belongs to God. He knows that one day he will go back to Jerusalem, just as we know that one day we shall go to be with the Lord in heaven, and friends, here this morning, we are in a far better position of the psalmist to see these things because of the Lord Jesus. You know, the psalmist didn't have what we have. So can I ask you, is your experience as rich as his? You know, we don't have to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to find God. We can know him every single day in our walk with the Lord Jesus, who is on the throne of heaven this morning. And while there will be times when there are very real reasons for feeling downcast and feeling discouraged, our future is always absolutely safe and absolutely secure in his loving hands. So let's remember these things before the Lord in prayer together now. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this lovely psalm that teaches us how to think and how to pray when we are downcast and discouraged. In a world that has rejected Jesus, there are inevitably times when we too are rejected and it feels that you are miles away. Well, in those times, bring us back to this psalm again and again and remind us that you are always wonderfully near, that your love for us is constant, that you always hear us when we pray, and that you use our times of discouragement to prepare us for a future that is infinitely and wonderfully glorious. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.